depending on who you ask, a useful quantum computer could be anywhere from 2 to 50 years away. What are the barriers that will need to be overcome to make quantum computing relevant to real-world problems? And how are they being tackled? This is the team of Quantum Well, a new series of discussions organized by Horizon Quantum Computing. From quantum hardware to algorithms, from full tolerance to programming languages. In each episode, we talk to two scientists, putting their energy into tunneling through each of these barriers to useful quantum computing. Welcome to Quantum Well. In our first discussion, we talked with two scientists, John Morton and Chris Monroe, who are working on building quantum hardware. And one of the topics that came up during that was the need to suppress errors that occur during computation. That's going to be the focus of our discussion this time. Quantum computers are particularly susceptible to errors for exactly the same reason that quantum sensors are so sensitive. Encoding the processing of quantum information in such a way that any interactions with its environment can be corrected and undone is extremely challenging. But it's the only path we know that leads to a proven advantage over classical computing. Whether achieved through active error correction or through other techniques such as self-correction, dynamic decoupling, or decoherence-free subspaces, a high degree of error mitigation will be necessary if we are to achieve large-scale quantum computation. I'm Joe Fitzsimons, Chief Executive Officer of Horizon Quantum Computing. And I'm Stevie Tan, the Chief Science Officer of Horizon. I'm fortunate to be joined by two guests who are really expert in this area. John Preskill, who's Director of the Institute for Quantum Information and Matter at Caltech, and Dave Bacon, who's a Senior Staff Software Engineer at Google. So John, you started your career in physics, working on quantum field theory and cosmology. What led you to quantum computing? Hi, Siwi. Good to see everybody. I'm an admirer of uh, Joe Fitzsimons and Dave Bacon, so glad to be on the same uh, panel with them. Why did I get interested in quantum computing is the question. Well, I could give a very long answer, but it was a combination of factors. As you said, my background was in fundamental particle physics. And for my generation of physicists, we eagerly looked forward to the next generation accelerator back in the 90s, which was called the superconducting super collider, which was going to do the exploration of physics beyond the standard model that we all hungered for. And then that was canceled for complicated reasons in 1993. And so I asked myself, what am I going to do now? It's going to be a long time before we know what's really going on at those high energy scales. But there was something else I was interested in, which was having to do with quantum information, particularly how it gets processed with black holes. There are still lingering mysteries about that. And in order to explore that question, I had learned things about quantum information, which most particle physicists didn't know that much about at the time, about entanglement and teleportation and quantum cryptography and so on. And then something magical happened in 1994 when I heard that Peter Shore had discovered that quantum computers, at least theoretically, would be able to efficiently factor large numbers. And although I may have embellished the memory in the time since, I recall being awestruck by that finding, the idea that we can solve problems with future technologies that would otherwise be indefinitely out of reach because we can make use of the principles of quantum theory. I thought that was one of the most amazing ideas I'd ever heard in my scientific life. And it eventually 
led me to change the direction of my own research from particle physics to quantum information science. Dave, if you don't mind, I'm going to turn to you. I was a reader of your blog for many years, so I've kind of followed your career uh, pretty closely. It seems you can't escape quantum computing no matter how hard you try. Uh, have you given up trying? I think it's, the question is, when do I try again, right? So yeah, indeed, my path was definitely to be in quantum computing and then to leave the field to become a real, I call it a real software engineer. <laughs> and yeah. My path has been odd. I was uh, was actually an undergraduate in at Caltech when Peter Shore was making his discovery, and I actually did an intern project on quantum computing. Uh, John was actually the judge on the talk that I gave, and afterwards, I didn't make much progress on the problem. He came up to me and said, "That was a hard problem you worked on." Let's recall, Dave, you were trying to solve NP-hard problems with the quantum computer. I was. I was trying to solve what is on Scott Aronson's blog now, says is not, not possible, right? Most people don't <laughs> you that's you know, He doesn't say I, it's I was, not possible. Not, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's not thought to be. So I was, it was an optimistic time, and why not work on that, right? Why not work on trying to see what quantum computers could do? Um, and then I actually decided when I, I left once in some ways, when I went to grad school, I was going to do astrophysics. So I took all astronomy classes. And then I got sort of sucked back in as I began to understand error correction, which people like John were in the middle of, of discovering at the time. I wasn't paying close enough attention while I was an undergraduate, frankly, and sort of got drawn back into that. And then I became a professor, so sort of the straight academic life. And then for reasons that we should, you know, or just like life, I decided it was time to try something new and I became a software engineer at Google. And then kind of the amazing thing is that in the preceding years, you did, nobody needed a software engineer in quantum computing, but it's shifted now that we're starting to try to build larger and larger quantum computers. All of a sudden, they need people who are both quantum computing folks and also software engineers. And so I sort of got drawn back into the field. But I will always threaten that I might try something crazy new again, just because that's life. <laughs> and I'd like to add that Dave, of course, is one of our fondly remembered undergraduate alumni, not least because he was one of the few physics students who minored in English. And I have a, a BS in literature, which is the correct initials, I think, for that degree. <laughs> or English, I think it's what it's officially called now at Caltech. <laughs> I kind of left out on this in that I'm the only one that has never been associated with Caltech. Yeah, Caltech's a great place. I'm completely biased. My grandfather went there. So uh, you're never going to get me to say negative things about, about Caltech. <laughs> oh, I didn't go to MIT. Well, you also did a postdoc, by the way. And I did a postdoc. I was a postdoc for John Fresco, which was a fa fantastic time. I realized in retrospect, one of the great things is as a postdoc in quantum computing, you often spend your life on the road because you're trying to get jobs and you're doing research and you're moving around. But the great thing at Caltech was like, John just invited everybody. And so they came through. <laughs> and it was a really sort of spectacular place to just get to meet people in the field. And that's been useful now in my, my new life. I, you know, people ask if I know this person, like, oh, yeah, they came by Caltech. <laughs> right. This is generally the story. I wanted to start off with talking about the need for quantum computing. So as I say, last episode, we talked about the barriers to building scalable hardware, both in terms of the kind of physical systems you need and the need for control and so on. But let me ask both of you, what makes quantum computers so vulnerable to error? Why are error mitigation techniques and fault tolerance so important? One of the fundamental differences between classical information and quantum information is you can't look at a quantum state without disturbing it in some uncontrollable way. And even if we don't look at it ourselves, 
Uh, we can't, even though we try, perfectly isolate quantum information that we want to process from the outside world. So the environment, so to speak, is observing it all the time. And that causes quantum computation to fail. It removes the magic of superposition that makes quantum computing powerful. So ideally, we would like to perfectly isolate the qubits that we're processing from the outside. And since that's not possible, what we have learned theoretically is possible is to use the idea of quantum error correction to, in effect, protect the information by making it invisible to the environment. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself because you wanted to know why we want to do it, not how we do it. Look, uh, we quantum computing is really, really hard, Joe. The idea that we can solve hard problems with quantum computers is 40 years old. Dave remembers around the time he was starting graduate school, I guess, when we were first able to do quantum gates that could entangle two qubits. That was about 25 years ago. And the hardware keeps advancing, but it's not nearly good enough. Um, it's much better than it was. And I'm sure it will continue to advance. But to run applications that we're particularly excited about, we need far, far more reliable qubits, the key thing being able to do highly accurate entangling gates uh, between pairs of qubits. And although we've gotten a lot better, the error rate in the best devices, multi-qubit devices, is something like the 1% per operation level, maybe one in a thousand under ideal conditions, and it's just not nearly good enough. So either we're going to make much, much better hardware, and Dave told me when he was a postdoc, we were going to do that with topological quantum computing. I don't know if you still think that. But in the absence of much, much better hardware, we're uh, expecting it'll be necessary to uh, correct errors at the software level. That's the idea of quantum error correction. Yeah, I find it useful to just talk about sort of sizes of things we can do today, right? So I was reading the paper last week where, you know, they were able to do a quantum computation with about 270 two-qubit operations, which is a lot compared to what we could do a few years ago. But that's sort of about the size of what we can do before we start to get drowned out by noise. And that's not a very useful I think about it as just operations are doing by pencil and paper. You know, even I can write down, I probably handed it homework sets while I was at Caltech where I had to do 270 operations, right? Like not, that's not very much computation. And right now that's where our hardware, a lot of our hardware is sort of at. But, you know, this miracle of error correction shows that, that if we have sufficiently noise-free initial sort of qubits, we can build up this, this larger structure to perform longer computations. Both of you mentioned that, you know, hardware has been improving and, you know, people have been still actively working on error correction. And error correction was important, was known to be important even before the first uh, quantum computer was built. Do you think error, there's a family or one error correcting code that would serve all our needs? Or do you think we have to tailor codes to different systems? I don't know. You just wrote a paper <laughs> on, I mean, you've written papers on the different ways of doing this. So I think I could guess your answer. <laughs> well, look. We can think, talk about the near term and the longer term. There is an idea, which is also goes back over 20 years, about how to do quantum error correction, which sprung from the fertile imagination of Alexei Kataev, which, well, the principle of quantum error correction more broadly 
is that if we want to protect quantum information, then we should store it in a highly entangled form. Entanglement has this wonderful feature that if you have a system of many qubits and they're entangled with one another, then you can store information in that many qubit system in such a way that when you look at just parts of the system one at a time, a few qubits at a time, that information is completely invisible. And that's how we intend to fool the environment and prevent it from learning about the encoded state. And uh, Kataya's great idea was that we can imagine building materials that have that feature, that store information in that very highly entangled form that's well concealed. But he also pointed out that we don't necessarily have to make the material out of, say, a solid state system. We can, in effect, simulate that material with any qubits of our choice. And 20 years or more later, that's still the best idea we have uh, to do quantum error correction. We, it's what we call the toric code or the surface code that Kataev invented. And it has some big advantages. One is that the processing that we need to do to uh, detect the errors is quite simple. It's geometrically local in two dimensions. So you can have the qubits laid out on a table and just act on four neighboring qubits at once to learn about the errors. And also it tolerates a relatively high error rate. And that's going to be really important in the near term where we're trying to just barely get below uh, the error rate that makes error correction possible, that makes it effective. And so in the near term, we don't have a better idea than Torah code. On the other hand, part of Kataev's insight was that we can do some of our error correction at the hardware level and then sort of clean up the rest of it at the software level. So I think increasingly in the future, we will take advantage of the principles of quantum error correction in the design of the, of the hardware. But I expect that, you know, over, say, the next five years, where we hope we will see persuasive evidence that quantum error correction is working and seeing it steadily improving, it's probably going to be um, using the surface code. So actually, that's an interesting point about, I guess, self-correction and, and using ideas from error correction in hardware. I wanted to ask you, actually, given the wide variety of tools that have been built up over the years for starting to mitigate errors in quantum systems, starting with things like robust pulse sequences, moving on through things like decoupling and decoherence-free subspaces, the self-correction, different things like this, onto error correction and full tolerance. What do you think the path forward looks like? Will it be that we go straight to that we're looking at building a full-tolerant quantum computer doing error correction codes on top of essentially raw physical operations? Or are we likely to see some combination of these effects or some different focuses through time? Um, Just how do you view these things as progressing? I always have a weird view on this, which is that I think we will always be doing the thing we we can do that's the hardest we can possibly do at the given time to get the most bang out of it, right? So in my mind, there's sort of, there is this sort of what I call, I always call the brute force approach, which is really like we are, our hardware is right on the cusp of being able to do these computations. Let's see how much we can get out of that. 
And this really does, for most systems that are laid out on a 2D spatial grid, right, lead you to the surface code. That's like clearly a code that has a lot of really awesome properties. And then you sort of think, well, what could happen to change that? Well, one thing that could happen to change that is things like thinking about the connectivity of the architecture, right? And so, you know, we do know in trapped ions, I worked for uh, the startup IonQ for, for a little bit, right? Within the trap, they have all doll connectivity. And you try to try to ask the question, can you leverage that to perform error correction using different codes? Right. And in fact, we've seen that. We've seen demonstration of some error correcting protocols, right, in trapped ions that are made possibly easier because of this all tall connectivity. Any qubit can talk to anything else. Um, but it, you kind of think about it is they're doing the best they can possibly do within that physical system. Right. But I also think the other thing is what was mentioned, which is like finding physical systems that embody error correction. The most famous example of this is Microsoft's effort in topological quantum computing, trying to use Majorana fermions to do quantum computation. And then you, you do you have this physical substrate that because of the physics of the device is protected. But I like John believe actually we're we're maybe even just at the beginning of exploring what we can do with hardware that looks like maybe the Majorana fermions, but maybe it's not exactly that. So applying air correction to the engineering of small, medium-sized systems to do air correction. And this is a, this is a thing I love because it's sort of this middle way. The topological one is sort of engineer a condensed matter system that has these exotic properties. And it's very hard because condensed matter things are messy and dirty. And then we have this other efforts, which is we've gotten really good at actually sort of engineering and building interesting quantum systems where we have pretty exquisite control. And the question is, can we marry these things to come up with something in that, that middle path? And I actually, if I have to predict, that's what I'll bet on these days. But um, as John likes to remind me, I once did say that the only way to build a quantum computer is topological, but, <laughs> and he's going to hold up me to that, I think, for the rest and of And you went life. to Google and not Microsoft. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, there is a joke at Microsoft, I think, in Copenhagen. Uh, basically, will they find the topological qubits first or uh, Mirana himself? <laughs> because he went as... Because <laughs> Mirana would famously win. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so given that we have all of these different fault tolerance schemes that have been worked out, different error correction codes, different approaches, different techniques for mitigating error. And we've started to see experimental demonstrations of error correction and of fault tolerant gate sets and different things like this. What are the barriers that still exist to building fault tolerant quantum computers? Dave, you're at Google, which has obviously been one of the leading uh, experimental efforts on superconducting qubits. I'm not asking you to speak for experimentalists, but what do you see as the, the main barriers ahead of us? John said it in some fundamental way. It's still extremely hard to get these experiments to, there's still experiments, right, to get them to work. We are just learning how to do this. I think there are some things that we're starting to see that are interesting, which is, there's a word in quantum computing that I, I don't like to say it because I don't really know what it means, which is scalable, right? And people say, talk about scalable technologies and scalable feels like one of these things to me that like you see it after you've sort of, you know, you know it when you see it, right? Like it, it, it's kind of hard to describe because it has a lot of components, but we definitely see that a lot of quantum computing for many years was focused inwardly on improving parts of a system, right? Getting better base decoherence rates, working on controlling single qubits, working on particular parts, getting measurement to work with, you know, without reading the wrong bit out, right? So it was always sort of focused on components. And then 
what we've seen in the last few years is the bringing together of these things at the same time and coordinating them. And of course, when you do that, nothing survives being put together and mashed together to work correctly at the same time. And so I think that's that's one key challenge we're seeing for, especially for sort of these, you know, brute force type approaches is, is getting that to work at everything at the same time. Or I think that's one of the key things we're seeing as a challenge. And then the other thing is just the technology to scale this up is, is extremely challenging, right? Like, so wiring, right? Like you see these pictures of like Google's inside of the cryostat and you realize these are all wires going down to this chip, right? Like that obviously doesn't scale, right? Again, it's one of these things we can't really, you can't tell me exactly, but you can say that doesn't really scale. So I think it's it's trying to figure out how to scale while keeping all the principles of getting these, these qubit rates, degrees uh, rates and, you know, low. And the final thing to say is just like, if we can find ways to do them all at the same time and be significantly better, we should be doing that. And that will lessen our overhead and the scaling becomes less of a challenge. So it's not straightforward which of these you should actually focus on, right? Like, should you focus on scaling things up? Maybe, maybe you should also focus on 10 to the minus five error rate for your two qubit gates. That would be incredible, right? That would that would change the dynamics of how much scaling you need to do. So it's not clear how to play those trade-offs right now. We would like to see that as you increase the size of a quantum error correcting code block, say in the surface code, the error rates decline exponentially with the size of that code block. That's kind of the hallmark of quantum error correction. And we would also like to see that gates can be protected with that exponential improvement in fidelity as we scale things up. We haven't seen that yet. Why haven't we? Well, the short answer is the gates aren't good enough. The error rates are too high. Now, actually, there was a very interesting experiment that the Google group did where they did see exponential improvement in the error rate as they increased the size of the code block. But the catch was it wasn't a full-blown quantum error correcting code. They can only correct one type of error. The defacing error is not the bit flips. And that uh, configuration. Still, it was a very interesting experiment because they were able to do up to 50 repeated rounds of quantum error correction. That's another thing we'd like to see. We'd like to see many successive rounds. And they were able to say that as they increased the size of the code block from three to seven to 11, uh, each time the error rate went down by an order of magnitude, which was you know, what the theory predicted should happen. Like, like I said, the catch was they couldn't correct all the errors. And then we've seen some other experiments recently, like one done by Honeywell, where they were able to do repeated rounds of error correction for a real full-blown quantum error correcting code that can correct any one arbitrary error in a block of seven. But they did not succeed in getting an error rate which was improved by using quantum error correction compared to the you know unprotected error rates. And so, of course, Dave was right. We need to, it's a war with many fronts. There are a lot of things we have to improve. Uh, but the most important one, in my view, is the physical error rates have to go down. That's right. And the, there are interesting trade-offs there too, even, right? So, I mean, the in the same paper that John described for the Google result, they did a, tried to do an analysis of like, what are the main contributing errors? And it's true that, for example, two qubit gates are important, but one of the other biggest problems is in those systems, you have long measurement times. So if you have long measurement times, 
your other qubits are idling. And if they're idling, they're decohering, right? So you need to do things like dynamic decoupling, other techniques to preserve this while this is occurring. So it, there's a bunch of different things that are playing off each other here. And it, some things like the, the art of like understanding that landscape is a challenging one. And we are seeing more and more people trying to like work in that space and understand it. Of course, you know, like John and his team have been doing this for a long time, but it's sort of like there's a new burgeoning field where people are starting to really think about all these trade-offs and, and understand that landscape, or at least maybe get some idea about like where you need to be focusing your improvements. <laughs> you know, it's not just the time to do the measurement, which is an issue. You also have to reset the qubits after the measurement. And that's actually where a lot of the time budget went. Yeah, that's right. Measurement and reset. You sort of have a, a general thing of getting it back to where it was, right? So this is a bit of an aside, but I think it's worth mentioning. In that Google experiment, each round of error correction took about a microsecond. And in the Honeywell work, each round of error correction took 200 millisecond. Okay, so it's a many order of magnitude difference in the cycle time. And maybe that's not a big deal in the short term, but eventually it's going to be a big deal because if you can get the time to solution to be shorter by a factor of 10 to the five, that's a big win. So I think it's this is going to be a big challenge for ion traps going forward. They want much faster gates. And potentially there are ways of doing that, you know, with more laser power and so on. But that's a, that's a big technical challenge in itself. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the interesting things about this Google experiment, as you mentioned, only correcting one type of one type of error. One of the works that stood out to me, I visited QEC in 2007, so a long time ago. And I believe you and Panosiliferous had a paper at that about, about biased noise, correcting against biased noise and getting a, a much better threshold than you might otherwise get. And it seems some of the recent work in the last year or two that has captured people's imagination a bit has been, for example, these uh, XZZX code and things like this, which is basically the surface code, but you're just writing stabilizers in a slightly better way. Well, in a slightly more suitable way to deal with biased noise. And so, I mean, I guess the question I have is, is it not natural that we would start to correct one type of error, the dominant kind of error first? In the same way that, for example, if you're trying to build a better trapped ion or something like that, you try to knock off the sources of error one at a time, starting with the most, whatever your dominant source of error is. It's a natural idea, but it's tricky to implement. So thank you for remembering that 2007 paper with Oliferis. And what we were very troubled by at the time was we wanted to consider a noise model, which was highly biased. So in the jargon, we use, you know, Z errors had a high error rate and X errors had a low error rate. So essentially, there are two, there are two main types of errors, and uh, one was much worse than the other. And so we wanted to focus our error correcting power on these more frequent Z errors. But we also wanted to do processing. We wanted to do a quantum computation. And when you start doing the gates, you have to worry about how the logic affects the noise. And so we, we figured out how to build little gadgets that could take advantage of the bias and still enable us to do a universal quantum computation. And the, th the thing that came as a surprise to me, which was first pointed out a couple of years ago, is that in uh, the setting of a certain kind of qubit, you can realize in particular using uh, 
superconducting technology, it's possible to do operations that flip the bits while preserving the bias. We had to find some other more complicated workaround. And so that has you know, generated some uh, optimism about taking advantage of the bias and the noise. And well, I can say a little bit more about that, but maybe maybe we can save that for later. But it requires a particular type of way of encoding the qubits to get that to work. That really brings up a lot of memories of that time. <laughs> it was quite a while ago. I guess we sort of moved on to like basically talking about, you know, some concepts have come up, like talking about thresholds and stuff. So taking into account these experimental improvements, um, like the threshold theorem for those of in the audience who doesn't know, it states that error correction can only be achieved if a certain required manipulation, quantum manipulation can be performed with very low error. So below a certain threshold, therefore threshold theorem. Like when theories calculates this threshold, what contributes to it and how is it calculated? Is it difficult? Does it take into account these experimental parameters, like, you know, measurement time scales and, you know, all these trade-offs and does it take a lot to calculate it? John, you've calculated it. Boy, I calculated and calculated and calculated it. <laughs> I, uh, when David Pullen was a postdoc at Caltech, and sadly he's no longer with us, but he one day he kind of took me aside and he said, why are you always proving threshold theorem? You know, haven't, uh, do we have to beat that to death? But there were a number of questions of principle that in those days I was trying to address by proving threshold theorems under different conditions. So first of all, what do you need to make it work at all if you're going to have a threshold? Well, you need to do parallel processing. You need to be able to perform logic in different parts of your device simultaneously uh, so you can take care of the errors that are occurring at some constant rate throughout the device. And you need the noise to have nice properties. In particular, it's got, of course, it's got to be weak enough. That's the whole point of the threshold, that there's some level of the noise such that uh, when the noise is below that level, error correction in principle can make logical error rate as small as you please. So you can compute for as long as you want. But it also has to be sufficiently uncorrelated. The error correction methods that have been most extensively studied and for good reasons of principle, uh, don't work well if there are errors that act collectively on many qubits at once. And then the details, the answer to your question about how hard it is, depends on what you want to assume about the noise. So what we tried to do in our work was, you know, assume as little as we could get away with it. But what we always had in as an essential ingredient in the noise model that, you know, it was sufficiently local and the correlations in the noise were sufficiently suppressed. So we, we considered models where, you know, the noise acts on qubits one at a time or two at a time or many at a time. And the condition that you need on the noise that acts on the qubits two at a time or three at a time is a lot more stringent than the condition on the noise that acts on the qubits one at a time, which I guess isn't a surprise. But it was interesting to uh, work that out. Another issue is coherence. You know, often people ignore the coherence in the noise. The way we usually think about noise at a fundamental level is that, you know, there's some interaction between the system and the environment that's itself described by some Hamiltonian. And so the errors are not the way we often like to model them for simplicity, exactly described stochastically. I spoke of an error rate 
of 1% or 10 to the minus three. So implicitly, it's like the gate is either, you know, good 99 times out of 100 or uh, with probability 1%, it's bad. And that's a bit of a oversimplification as well. So if you want to allow the noise to be coherent, then that also enters into the threshold calculation and makes it more complicated and also more pessimistic. Yeah, let me chime in. I mean, one of the questions here is sort of, I have a problem that I'm working on where I'm trying to do a threshold calculation actually on my other window over here. (laughs) So one of the interesting things is, you know, they're just the different assumptions you're making this. And, And sometimes you're trying to prove thresholds, like John was talking about. Sometimes you're also just trying to numerically sort of get a handle on where things are and what the trade offs are. There's sort of a hierarchy of hardness in understanding this, right? And there's sort of like very simple noise models where it's easier to do this. And then as we get more complicated, we, I think, have less understanding of what happens. And that there are likely things hiding there, right? In fact, I mean, I saw one in the last year, which is that there are codes that when I first started, I worked on these things called decoherence-free subspaces. And there was a code that I worked on as well that is an error correcting code. And it's natural to look at these things on like in this on a three by three grid or a five by five grid, distance three, distance five. Distance four is weird. It's like in between those two. Distance three can correct one error. Distance five can correct two errors. Why would you do four? Well, it turns out if you look at the four by four case, these codes actually had in this particular choice of sort of what people call gauge that that they can be robust to a coherent error. So one of these errors that John described as not being described by the stochastic thing. And in fact, it's robust to sort of a collective, you think about a collective magnetic field across this four by four patch. If it's in one particular direction, it's sort of protected. And that's really fascinating because that's an example of a coherent error that you're sort of like, it won't be 100% uniform. So you won't be 100% perfective, but you might, you know, take an error rate from that process that's large and get it down by a factor of 100 right? That would be a major improvement. And that that can then impact the design of your qubits. Different architectures may have that problem, and now it may be less of a problem for them, right? So understanding places where the how the noise model interacts with the error correcting code is hard. And one of the issues is just it's very hard to simulate those systems. Um, very famously, I love this paper, but I don't know if many people know it. You know, the late David Poulin had a paper which basically said like, his argument was essentially like you need to run the quantum computation to actually figure out what the right way to deal with the errors are. And maybe that's true. I'm not sure. But that's a fascinating sort of world that like it gets, we get to the point where actually it's really hard to even simulate this. And maybe we have to just go and try it and see what's going on. I, it's hard for me to understand that. <laughs> I wanted to make one other point of principle, which I neglected to make a minute ago which is what's essential for having a threshold, an additional thing that's essential, is you need to be able to refresh the qubits or in some way or other flush entropy out of the device. You might just do it by measuring the qubits and storing a classical record of how you measured them. But at any rate, if you're thinking about how to make uh, quantum computing fault tolerant, you always have to have in mind how you're going to remove the entropy. And that enters into... um, into a threshold calculation. Also, I guess another thing we haven't mentioned is leakage. There's a type of error where the qubit just goes off to never, never land for a while out of the uh, encoded space. And that happens in real devices. And so uh, if you're going to deal with it, you have to have something like a reset after leakage. And, you know, that can also affect the threshold. So the story can get complicated. The interesting thing about the leakage thing that I always love is like, counterintuitively, what you really want is a place to put your quantum information 
that is really bad at storing it, right? Like you really want to flush it as quick as possible. And I think sometimes we get caught in a thing where we're only trying to improve these base decoherence things, not thinking like when we engineer it, we actually need a place to dump it, right? And we've seen examples of that where, you know, where like, if you don't have a fast reset and you just let your system relax back to zero, you can improve your the lifetime of your qubit, but then that slows down your computation because if you're just letting it relax back, right, you have to wait longer because you've got a better qubit, right? So sometimes it's good to have really gnarly bad things in your system, but you need to be able to switch them on and off, of course, and that's that's part of the challenge, right? But keeping it cold is important. <laughs> When we take all of these factors into account, well, it seems that when we talk about thresholds, there's uh, some subtlety that creeps in because we don't really have a good axiomatization of what noise should look like for a quantum system, unless I'm mistaken. And one of the criticisms that people who are skeptical of quantum computing and think that perhaps quantum uh, fault tolerance should never be possible it is the susceptibility of some of these schemes to uh, collective noise to highly correlated noise. So, I mean, we know, for example, that, well, the Google Lab is in California, and California is prone to earthquakes, and an earthquake could potentially be a very, very, very large correlated error in a device. Um, so it seems hard to prove that such things can never happen, because clearly they can. I'll tell you something I'm more worried about than, yeah. than earthquakes, because they happen more often, is cosmic rays. Yeah, yeah cosmic sure. rays, man. Sure. So cosmic rays are a good point. So they inject a, a large correlated error. Is it clear that this is actually a, a particularly bad kind of error? Or is that just because of the way we have come to quantum error correction, quantum fault tolerance, coming from thinking about kind of IID noise and that, that kind of direction? Well, so, it ain't good. Yeah, it's not good. You know, this is so just to describe the effect, right? So in superconducting circuits, you can often have cosmic rays that cause large correlated errors across your system, right? And that seems very bad for most ways we know of dealing with air correction. Now, there are, there's technological ideas that people have for working on this for superconductors. Other platforms may not have the same type of problem. I do think that's definitely, especially when you think about the sort of brute force approach, it's, it's definitely a worry that we have to think about, right? Like, I think it's one of these things that I, building one of these large, air-corrected fault-tolerant quantum computers is going to be one of the most large, if we brute force it, one of the most large, interesting scientific experiments ever done, right? Like this is not a small, small thing, right? Like, and the idea that like you're doing this while you're getting hit by cosmic rays that cause correlated errors just makes me even more scared, right? Like anytime we add more things like this, it just increases the size and complexity of what we're doing. That said, I think the skepticism tends to be along the lines of, thinking about weird correlated errors that can occur when your noise models are very odd. And John and others have done a lot of experiments sort of cornering that and trying to understand where that is. Again, it's like, what does the physics of the device give you is the real question here. I'm skeptical that there are really weird ones coming from things we don't understand. But obviously, shine, you know, obviously cosmic rays hitting your device is something we kind of do understand, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> you know, it's known physics that's causing this. And there are known ways to mitigate it, though you might not like it. We can go deep underground. Yeah. There's a famous uh, science fiction book by Robert Sawyer. I used to laugh because it was it's called Hominids. And it's, of course, it starts in the Neanderthal universe. And they have a quantum computer. And they put it in the base of a cave or of, of a giant mine shaft. 
to keep it isolated. And I remember reading that at the time and thinking like, oh, that's ridiculous. You would never do That's not really the isolation we care about. And I'm going to have to eat by, <laughs> like we may have to go underground. <laughs> In some sense, an upside to correlated error is that you can sense that it occurs without measuring your qubit. It might be a reason to revisit code concatenation. You know, that was the sort of first natural idea for understanding the threshold, a kind of hierarchy of codes within codes. And as you go higher and higher in this uh, hierarchy, the effective error rate gets less and less. And if you're worried about errors that can affect uh, many qubits at once, maybe you want to have an architecture in which that would only affect uh, a code at some lower level of the hierarchy, which could then be corrected at the next level up. Uh, That's just one of the possible ideas for how you'd handle something like that. Actually, let me ask you, aside from this, where is your current feeling of where we stand in relation to achieving full tolerance? How far are we away from, for example, demonstrating a logical qubit or a full set of full tolerant operations between two logical qubits, by which I mean sustained uh, error correction over a significant period of time and with the kind of exponential suppression of errors that, that you talked about earlier, John? I don't know. I don't even think Dave knows what the answer is. But I think the gold standard should be, you know, an encoded entangling gate, which is substantially improved by doing quantum error correction. And in order for it to work, we'll need low error rates and we'll need all the hardware to function the way it's supposed to. And we'll need the correlations uh, not to be uh, too strong, as we've been discussing. It's actually interesting that, you know, different hardware approaches have have trade-offs there. Even in the superconducting circuit space, although their fundamental qubits at IBM and Google are uh, sort of similar, they're based on the idea of a transmon, which goes back 15 years and was such a good idea. We haven't changed it much. It has the advantage of being really simple. But as far as doing the gates, Google has these couplers that they can turn on and off uh, between qubits. And IBM has fixed frequency gates, and they try to drive them to get them to couple. And so the IBM approach, on the face of it, has more of a problem with what they call crosstalk, a type of correlated error. And so their hardware layout is designed to attempt to mitigate that, but at a cost, which which is less connectivity, which makes error correction a little bit less effective. So, I mean, I'm hoping that we'll see what you're asking for on a time scale of a few years, say five years, but it is going to require, I think most importantly, improved physical error rates in a multi-qubit device, which works the way it's supposed to. Of course, I'm always an optimist. I actually think we're entering a, a super exciting period, which is people are doing the protocols and trying to understand why they're failing, which is kind of what you need to do to really if you're not doing it, you're just talking about it and you're just optimizing things that you haven't actually done it. And so we're seeing that. And we're starting to see, we're going to continue to see like claims of basic things being slightly better, right? Which is one thing. Each of your components, you'd like to do an encoded way that's slightly better. And then this other thing that, that John mentioned, which is like, as you scale up the size of the code, we want to see the suppression. And these are two sort of separate, in my mind, they're sort of, they're, they're connected, but they're, they're different types of experiments that people are going to be doing. I'm particularly excited because I do think we're right on this era of like trying to do these first experiments. Now, of course, Amusingly, what will happen in the near term is if you're above the threshold, error correction does the opposite. It makes it worse. 
right? And so they're air worsening experiments. So we'll see a lot of amazing air worsening experiments, which is fine. That's actually great progress, right? And we'll see ones that are very close to this, you know, this threshold's a, a nebulous thing. There's lots of numbers that are going in here, not just one. And we'll see things that sort of are improving in some way, but it'll be very minimal, I think, at first. The real thing we, I think we really want to see is substantially getting this amplification to work, right? So as you scale it up, really seeing an exponential expression with a constant that's big enough, right? And that, I think, will be the magic time when we're sort of, if this brute force works in the right way, this, this will be the thing that I think will really herald in that we're in sort of the right era for error correction. But it'll be messy until then, which is great and fine. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, at this point, you know, as a follow-up question, you both mentioned with regards to exceeding the threshold, um, supercontent so qubits, right? As a follow-up, like we also have solid-state qubits, like silicon qubits and MV centers. Do you think that there's any interesting developments there now um, where you know maybe they can also catch up to the threshold, to exceed the threshold? People are trying. I think it's important that a lot of different hardware approaches are being pursued and are steadily advancing. There are lots of ways to encode a qubit physically. And one natural way, of course, is to use an atom. And even within that space, there are a lot of different things you can do. It can be a trapped ion, or it can be a neutral atom held in a tweezer array with lasers, or it can be a neutral atom in an optical lattice and so on. And, you know, there are lots of trade-offs. These different approaches have different advantages and disadvantages. I think it is noteworthy that, you know, if we were having this discussion a few years ago, I probably wouldn't have brought up Rydberg atoms because it's a hardware approach which has become competitive rather suddenly. And I think that's a good indicator that we're not ready to put all our eggs in one basket. If you weren't looking at the long view and you were given a few zillion dollars and told to build a quantum computer right away, you'd, you'd have to choose a hardware approach and invest heavily in it to try to perfect it. But we're not at the stage where that would be a wise thing to do, in my opinion, even if you had the resources, because we really don't know at this point which hardware approach is going to be the most promising in the long run. And it might be some kind of hybrid technology involving different types of hardware of playing different roles and the different types of hardware might find uh, different niches, maybe not quantum computing or but quantum sensing or something like that. So I'm all for continuing to pursue them all and to it's a tempting goal to shoot for with any hardware platform to demonstrate quantum error correction, which gives a convincing improvement. A good thing that I just want to riff on what John said there that I think is super important, which is one thing that the field in general has always done is, is you sort of, we have this big bang moment, Shor's algorithm, right? Which is a very challenging algorithm to do. And is an application that of course is mostly for cryptography. And then we have ideas about simulation and these are very challenging things. It's not obvious to me that what, one of the things we don't know is sort of what is the medium scale quantum computer most useful for? And some of the most interesting ideas that are actually probably in Cincy right now and it's not obvious to me that actually, like, the answer isn't both when people ask me, like, which of these, you know, they compare to platforms. It may actually be that, like, certain platforms are just better for certain types of applications. That's not surprising when you step back and think about it. But I think in, in quantum, everybody puts their eggs in their basket that's in front of them that they did in grad school and goes that direction, right? Like, that's the way to focus. And that's, of course, important. But it wouldn't be surprising to me if actually we have a lot of different technologies that are useful in different ways. 
and maybe even using different fault-tolerant protocols, right? Like, I mean, it kind of sounds bizarre that one protocol would rule them all. We just come out, somehow we, somehow we sort of envision the future. I actually suspect it'll be more, more diverse in terms of the different ways we approach this problem. On this issue of intermediate scale applications, as there's another point that I'd like to emphasize. Of course, we've been talking here about the wonderful day when we'll be able to do a single logical uh, two qubit uh, gate with a much improved error rate compared to physical gates. And that will be a real milestone, I think, in physics as well as technology. But come on, it's just two qubits doing a really good gate. So that's you can't run an application on that. So it's important that in the meantime, we'll be pursuing another route, which actually I think is pretty exciting. We have with the platforms that currently exist and are likely to exist in the near future, the capability of doing physics experiments that were never possible before, because we can control and observe uh, very highly entangled states of matter under very programmable conditions. We couldn't do that before. And I think there's an opportunity to do a lot of exciting physics, say, in the next five years with a variety of these platforms. And that, it seems to me, is the most likely application, if you want to call it an application, that is going to uh, to lead to really interesting results in the time scale of uh, the next several years. So we're coming up to the end of the hour. I just wanted to finish with one question told you beforehand that we also wanted to get your ideas about the most interesting ways going forward. In 1949, Popular Mechanics published this article uh, on ENIAC, and in the body of the article, it makes the claim that in the future, computers may weigh no more than 1.5 tons. And if you look at the way current approaches are to full-tolerant quantum computing, many of those approaches really explode the number of qubits that are necessary. You encode one logical qubit into 100 physical qubits or 1,000 physical qubits. You do enormous amounts of magic state distillation, for example, which may require vast numbers of ancilla qubits. Is there a prospect that in the future, quantum computers may weigh no more than one and a half tons? Is there a way of getting away from these very large multiplicative overheads and getting to something more efficient? What are the prospects in that direction? First of all, when, when we do build the first fault-tolerant quantum computer that can run useful applications, it's probably going to be a, a big mother. It's going to be a big, complicated device like what you were describing and weigh a lot more than one and a half tons. I think the most important step along the road of making it a much more compact device is not uh, more clever error correction algorithms. It's much better hardware. I guess I keep saying that. And maybe that will come from uh, incorporating insights from quantum error correction into the uh, design and, and building of hardware. But I mean, I assume in the long run, that's where quantum computing will, will go. I can't believe that 100 years from now, uh, people will be trying to squeeze as much juice as they can out of an error rate of 10 to the minus three. I imagine they'll have much, much better gates than... Uh, we currently foresee some way or another, but I don't really know how they're going to do it. It's the, is our future the steampunk where we have steam engines powering all of our computation, these giant dilution refrigerators the size of small football fields? Or is it like our today computer, right? Which are nuts, right? In terms of the performance and requires significant changes in our hardware, right? I think 
the fascinating thing is that error correction points out that it's possible to build these robust quantum computers, right? And I still believe strongly that finding the right substrate and doing that could lead to, you know, will lead to a future of reasonable sized quantum computers, right? Now, is that 50 years or 100 or 1,000? I don't know. <laughs> but I also, I just, it's just amazing that nature even allows us to do this, right? It was amazing discovery after Shor's algorithm that we can encode information to protect it. That's, we should, and if we can find a way to do that without having to do this crazy, all the crazy software that I have to write to program the damn thing, I'll be super happy uh, <laughs> to not have to write the error correcting software. To be fair, the competitor of the quantum computer is, you know, the most powerful supercomputers that we have today, which are digital and classical and they're big mothers too. I mean, they, that's true. Know. That's true. I mean, yeah, when you, when you think about it, actually, Current experiments are small compared to the Summit, which is the large one of the largest supercomputers, right? So we sort of set ourselves up in for tall tasks, right? Like competing against the supercomputer with a physics experiment on fifty or hundred qubits, right? Like it's kind of crazy. In some sense, maybe a David and Goliath story, right? Which is part of the excitement of the field. <laughs> but I guess once we can build uh, what Joe is envisioning, like a desktop-sized quantum computer, then It'll be irresistible to put a huge number of them together. And I wasn't so much suggesting that as wondering whether we might transition to a period where instead of doing one qubit to many physical qubits, we might be doing few qubits to many so that the overhead starts to not look multiplicative anymore, for example, as you enter a regime with lower physical error rates, for example. I wasn't necessarily suggesting quantum iPhones, although that would be cool if... Dave, if you guys can build that, <laughs> it's definitely worth a thousand dollars to me. There is some theory backing up the vision, but it's going to require much better error rates. And also probably the type of uh, non-locality Dave referred to earlier to realize these more powerful coding schemes. It seems like being restricted to geometric locality in three dimensions will be a limitation. Okay, so let me be respectful of your time and thank you both very, very much for joining us. Do either of you have any last words for the episode? Nobody wants to go first on a last words thing because then your words aren't last, but I'll, I'll go <laughs> first in the last words. <laughs> to me, I do believe we're at an extremely exciting time for error correction, but it's still a long push to getting even the basic building blocks working. So we should be realistic about the timelines we're seeing for fault tolerance, right? But on the other hand, this also means, I mean, I think that like reading the archive now for air correction is again, exciting. There are people thinking crazy thoughts now every day on in academia and in industry. And so I think we are entering another one of these heydays of like real interesting progress in the field. And it was thanks to people like John who kept a lot of the lights on <laughs> while the hardware was catching up that this exists. So it's been, it's been fun to talk to everyone about this. I think quantum error correction is one of the great insights in the history of physics, actually. And of course, I never expected when I began my career as a theoretical physicist to ever do anything that would be of interest to technologists. So that seems like kind of a miracle that that happened. But as a physicist, I also find exciting not just how we're going to use quantum error correction to make quantum computers work, but that it gives us new ways of thinking about uh, deep problems in physics, understanding nature. Does nature make use of error correction in uh, surprising ways? Uh, 
Well, we think that's probably the case in trying to understand how gravitation works at a quantum level. Air correction ideas seem to enter very naturally. So I think an idea this good as quantum air correction is probably going to yield many surprises down the road. But my last word is that this was really fun. So thanks for the opportunity to uh, join this conversation. Thank you both once again, sincerely for joining and for sharing your expertise with us. And thanks to the audience for joining as well. In the next installment of Quantum Well, we'll discuss what happens when you allow quantum computers to talk to one another. Quantum communication between nodes on a quantum network opens up a range of new applications, from cryptography and secure computing to sensor networks and distributed quantum computing. Quantum networks are particularly interesting because they allow for a quantum advantage for communications problems with significantly less complex devices than are required to show a computational advantage, something we already see with quantum key distribution. What are the barriers we face to achieving such networks, and what are the new applications they unlock? We'll explore these questions in the next episode of Quantum Well.